Well, it is a wonderful joy to get to be with you this morning. It is, uh, it is quite the honor. I'm grateful, Brad, for the, for the invitation and um, received so many texts. And just you have been a blessing to, to me, to our family. You continue to be a blessing with Jeremy and now Claire celebrating uh, their lives together. I come to you um, really from our church as a representative, not just as their pastor, but as the representative of the church, bringing greetings to you and, and gratitude. Uh, we thank you so much uh, for your prayers over, over these past several years. We thank you for the ways you have supported us, even monetarily. The gift that you gave us years back uh, brought us a, a associate pastor of Family Ministries who's now uh, on, on um, fully supported by our church, and now we're using some of those funds prayerfully as we seek a, someone to help us in our children's ministry full-time. So thank you. Thank you. You have been a blessing to us. I feel like an extension of UBC down into Texas. So, well, this month we have witnessed some, some beautiful ceremonies filled with song and celebration and symbolism and joyous gathering. It was an honor last night to share in the wedding, again, of one who's on staff with you and one who is my son. <laughs> Thank you again for the ways that you have loved him. I love talking to him throughout the weeks and just getting updates on you. And uh, I feel like my heart, a good bit of my heart is still here. And I love hearing the stories of God's faithfulness to you. It is quite something to stand right down there at the, uh, there at the bottom of the podium and you're waiting for those back doors to open up and everybody can feel it. There's that energy and all of a sudden everyone is in place and the, the music changes and those back doors fly open and there appears what looks like an angel from heaven. I was doing well until my son started crying, and then I lost it. It is incredible, an incredible feeling. On a grander scale, but I think a, less, a little bit less meaningful, at least to me, was a ceremony back on May 6th of the coronation of a new king in, in England. I woke up that Saturday morning to replays of all the symbolic acts that occurred at Westminster Abbey as Charles III and his wife Camilla were crowned king and queen of the United Kingdom and all of the other Commonwealth realms. And as the royal family, this is when I turned the, the television on, they were, they were at Buckingham Palace and they were inside and there were just throngs of people lining the streets everywhere and they were marching down the streets. They were getting ready to, 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 wake, to welcome their new king and queen. And they came out onto that balcony. If some of you saw that, everyone just began to, to cheer and to celebrate. Voices, all thousands upon thousands of voices cheering. And then soon it gave way to shouts of, long live the king. But on an even greater scale and heavenly scene, 
There's another procession that takes place, and we read about it in the book of Revelation. John is ushered to the very throne room of heaven where, where God is seated, and he's holding a scroll that, that has written on it on the front and the back the redemptive plan of God, his will, his purposes, and it's bound with seven seals. And a mighty angel comes onto the scene and asks this question, who's, who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Silence filled the heavens and the earth. Silence. John begins to weep. One of the heaven's elders says to him, stop weeping. Look there, look. It's the lion of Judah, the the root of David. He's conquered and is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. We sang about that earlier. He looked again and rather than seeing a lion, he, he sees a lamb as though he had been slain. He made his way processed his way up to the very throne of God, and he took the scroll in his right hand. And as soon as he took hold of the scroll, heaven erupted in all field worship as the four living creatures, the 24 elders, bowed down before God. They began to sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you are slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God and every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. We'll see and see soon an unbreakable kingdom. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. And later, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, and as glorious a picture as these words paint and we read about, it's just, a, it's just a taste of what worship will be like. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But there's another heavenly entrance that's filled with glorious celebration and spiritual significance, and it involved all who belong to Christ. It's, it's us he's speaking of. And we find this account in our text today. Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Hebrews is in toward the very back of your Bible. I was looking up numbers and I got two different numbers, so I won't give that. Just go to the back. It's right there. Right after Titus, Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 18 and go to the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the have the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect or complete, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they do not escape when if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. This passage, I believe, shows us that the gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom that elicits gratitude and worship. The gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom that elicits gratitude and worship. Let me give you just a little bit of background to the book of Hebrews. The the anonymous author, maybe Apollos, he's writing to the church in Rome, maybe churches throughout Italy, Somewhere in the mid-60s, just prior to when Nero comes on the scene and brings a severe persecution to the Christians. These young Christians, most of whom were probably Jewish converts, they were experiencing the beginnings of persecution for their faith. Ridicule and rejection, ostracization, physical abuse, loss of property and even imprisonment. And some of these early Christians that are beginning to, to think twice about their, their new faith, it's been too costly for them. Maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe those seeds, it's like on the rocky soil, it hadn't quite taken root. They're ready to just go back. They're on the brink of throwing in the towel and going back to, to, to Judea, uh, uh, Judaism. But with the rhetorical skill of a scholar and the the deep heart of a pastor, our author, he pins this word of exhortation that reads more like a sermon than it does a letter, brimming with Christology and soteriology, our scholarly pastor, he paints this high and exalting picture of Jesus who is far superior than the angels. He's far superior than They're idolized Moses. 
He's superior than the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system. Paragraph by paragraph, he builds an insurmountable case that Jesus is both the high priest who mediates a new covenant, and he's also the the substitutionary sacrifice himself who endured once for all and in the holy place in heaven offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but he offers his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. So with words of admonition and encouragement, he calls these weary believers to persevere, to hang in there, to persevere in their faith, to endure, to hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering. He reminds them how important it is to live out their faith in community, in the body, stirring up one another to love and good works and encouraging one another as often as they meet together. He also reminds them that they are surrounded by other great and women, great men and women of the faith who stand before them and bear witness to faithful fortitude. He says to them, and I believe he says to us today, draw strength from their lives, but ultimately cast your gaze upon Jesus. As Brad prayed, the the one who founded our faith and the one who will perfect it, complete it. Consider that he's what he's done on your behalf and all that he endured. So run this race. Run this race of faith with endurance. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, this is a book I think we need to read often. Read it often. And then camp out in this passage, which I believe is the kind of the pinnacle of the whole book. Then he does come to this passage that we're focusing on today. Again, we see that the gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom that elicits gratitude and worship. And so let's break down this this main idea into those three parts, just breaking that sentence down. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. Our passage opens with these two contrasting scenes. The first scene takes us back to to Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Joy read that. You, You see the picture of it. Also in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, where God is giving the law to his people there on Mount Sinai. The description of this mountain is, I mean, it's frightening. It's blazing with fire. It's filled with darkness and gloom and a tempest. Then there's this disembodied voice thundering from the mountain like a blaring trumpet. And so awful was the voice that the people begged for it to stop. And at the foot of the mountain was this barrier, a danger sign that that had words saying something like this. Extreme warning and peril, do not come to this mountain. If you touch it, you you will die. Don't even let your animals come to this mountain. If they do, they need to be stoned to death. You've been warned. 
Moses himself trembled with fear at the overwhelming terror of this mountain, it says. Mount Sinai represents the law. This mountain was, it was unapproachable. The barricade between God and his people made it impossible, impossible to come near to God. You couldn't do it. This mountain is, it's intimidating. It's, it's overwhelming. It's impersonal. And what's crazy is that it's this mountain that some of the people that our author is writing to want to return to. They want to go back to the, their old ways. They want to go back to following the law, every aspect of the law. Rather than counting the cost of following Jesus, they, they prefer the impersonal ritual of law-keeping. But that's the problem with the law. It shows us that, that we can't keep it, and we therefore have no hope of coming near God. The law shines a light on our, our sinful nature. It shows us the impassable chasm between us and God. Praise God that the writer says that we have not come to that mountain. We have not come to that mountain, verse 18. And look down, look down a little, little further down in verse 22. That word, but, but you have come to Mount Zion. You've not come to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion. As Mount Sinai represents the law, Mount Zion represents grace. It's the good news of the grace or the gospel of grace. You see, after King David had defeated the Jebusites, he brought the Ark of the Covenant, had it placed in what was referred to there as Mount Zion. And it became known as the place where God dwelt. The presence of the living God. His very presence rested there in Mount Zion. The psalmist pens a song about it. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's delivered it for his dwelling place. And God says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Friends, we have arrived at this mountain, Mount Zion, the scripture says. We have received it. We have come to this mountain. And look at this incredible scene and its procession. It's not just a mountain that we come to. It's the city of the living God. We sang about it there in that, that last hymn, Jerusalem. It's God's city. And it's not just hopping on a plane and going to to Israel and traveling around the city there in Jerusalem. It's not that Jerusalem. This is a heavenly Jerusalem where God's glory illuminates the streets. And as we make our way into the city, there are myriads, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels all around, too many to count. And they are all gathered together celebrating Oh, it's far grander than the streets there in Buckingham Palace. Maybe close to what I saw last night at the, at the reception. That was some celebrating going on last night. 
But just try to picture millions upon millions of angels in heavenly and joyous celebration. I mean, how incredible that is going to be, to see that, to be among that. But that's not all. That, uh, that, there's others that here who have joined into this festive gathering. Our text says that the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are there. You see, we come to Mount Zion with the blood-bought saints of God who have, who have been adopted into his, his family through Christ. It is you and me. It is the saints of God. It is the family of God. It's those who have been adopted are, are now his firstborn sons. And their names are written in the book of life. Now in the Bible, the firstborn son was, were those who would receive the inheritance. Peter tells us that God has caused us. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Firstborn sons. We come as heirs of the God of creation whose kingdom has no end. And notice also it says we come into God's presence. See, unlike, unlike Mount Sinai where one foot placed upon the mountain would be met with death, now we come boldly into the very presence of God who is the judge of all. And we don't come Scared, fearing our lives, we come with joy. Where Sinai and the law brought death, Zion and grace brings life. There's more. Our text says that we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect or made complete. Some believe, scholars believe that these are the Old Testament saints like Noah and Abraham, Moses, David, and others. And it seems more like an additional description of, of the redeemed of God. First, we're described as the firstborn sons or heirs, and now we're described as those who have been made perfect, been made complete. You see, at the cross, Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now at this mountain processional, the, the gospel of grace has brought our righteousness to completion, to finality. We're, in, we're progressing our way, saint, being sanctified day by day. And one day that will be complete and finalized, fully righteous in his sight, pure, holy, but not only do we come to God on this mountain, we also come near to Jesus, the one who established a new covenant and brought us to God through his blood. Jesus, Jesus is the one who, who closed that chasm. He is the one who fulfilled that old covenant and brought forth the new covenant of grace. See, the gospel of grace is made possible through the sprinkled blood, the scripture says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus. They're offered once and forever for sin to all who turn and trust in him. 
We need to go back to Hebrews, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You see, Jesus' blood speaks, it speaks today. Jesus speaks today. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus speaks a better word. A drawing on some inspiration from Tim Keller. The gospel of grace is seen in Abel, whose blood called out for justice. And is pointing to Jesus, to the one whose blood satisfied justice. The gospel of grace is seen in Adam, whose sin brought death, pointing to the one whose sinlessness paved the way to life. The gospel of grace is seen in Abraham, whose obedience established a people for God. But pointing to the one whose obedience purchased a people for God. The gospel of grace is seen in Isaac, whose life was spared by a substitutionary sacrifice. Pointing to the one who hung on a cross in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice. The gospel of grace is seen in Joseph, who forgave his brother's sins and saved his family pointing to the one, to Jesus, who forgives our sins and brings us into a spiritual family. The gospel of grace is seen in Moses, who brought forth God's law, pointing to the one, to Jesus, who fulfilled God's law. The gospel of grace is seen in Joshua, who brought God's people into the promised land, pointing to Jesus, the one who's going to lead this procession, the one who brings God's people into heaven's promised land. The gospel of grace is seen in David, who defeated the giant with a fatal blow to the head, pointing to the one who defeated Satan with a fatal blow to his head. And the gospel of grace is seen in Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of the great fish, pointing to the one, Jesus the one who spent three days in the grave but rose triumphantly on that Sunday dawn. Jesus. Jesus is the gospel of grace. And he speaks a better word. Let's consider the second part of this main idea. The gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom. It makes us members of an unshakable kingdom. Our passage now moves to the last of what are five warnings you can find throughout the, the book of Hebrews. Verse 25, this warning, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Jesus is speaking. God's voice is speaking from the mountain. And this warning, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. You can feel the urgency as you read through the text. You can feel the urgency and the seriousness of this situation. The author is writing to these, these maybe they're believers, they're just young, and they're ready to say, I'm done with this. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that mountain. 
Hear Jesus. See Jesus. Respond to his voice. Now these two mountains, the the first mountain of law, he says if you go back there, you're rejecting the gospel of grace and rejecting the one who warns from heaven. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. And they died. God warned from heaven. Jesus speaks through the gospel of grace. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Sounds a little like those words Joshua was, he he shared with the people of Israel there, the promised land, the end of the book, the land that had been conquered. They were at rest. Joshua 24 Verse 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers who they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Which mountain are you going to come to? The mountain of law and ritual and religiosity? The mountain of grace? Maybe you're here today. You've never considered the good news of grace. Maybe if you think about it, you, you can't say with certainty that you'll be a part of that heavenly procession that we've been talking about. Friend, you can't make the journey on your own. You you can't get there. The chasm is too wide. But the good news of the gospel of grace is that Jesus made a way. He made a way for us to come to Mount Zion. You see, we all have sinned. We've all willfully turned away from God, from his design, from his will, from his desires for us. And that rebellion is sin, and that sin has consequences. He brought the law to show us our sin, and we are guilty. We see it there. And we might say, well, I haven't murdered. Well, then Jesus comes along. Remember that? He says, have you ever been angry with anyone? Uh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, then you've, then you've murdered in your heart. Well, okay, I, I've never committed adultery. You know, I've been, well, have you, have you ever looked with lustful intent at someone? Maybe just, maybe slightly, well, then you've committed adultery. We've broken the law. We have no hope of coming to Mount Zion. But out of great love, God sent his son. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He was the only one who could go to the cross to pay sin's price. And he willingly gave his life there. He took upon himself our sin, our shame, our guilt. And for all who would turn and trust in him, to all who would say, yes, Jesus, receive him as Lord and Savior life, he gives us righteousness. He makes us righteous before God. He brings us to the mountain and says, here, all of this festive gathering is for you. He brings us in to the family of God as sons 
and heirs of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Friend, if you haven't received the joy of of that relationship, I would encourage you today, give your life to him. I know there are pastors, elders at the doors. I'd love to talk with you. There's plenty of people. Talk to the person who brought you here today. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you're still just hanging out somewhere between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Somewhere between law and grace, just like the people of this, of this letter. Maybe you've been through some very challenging times in your life. It seems like God's just at a distance and it's just not worth it anymore. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. It's a real thing. You're ready to just throw, it, throw in the towel. I'm kind of done. Friends, turning from the mountain of grace to the mountain of law will not bring peace and life. It brings just the opposite. Press in. This is why I think he encourages us to, as often as we meet together, to encourage each other, to stir one another up, to link arms and say, hey, we, we got this. We can do this. And when I'm down, I've got brothers and sisters who's going to come alongside me and lift me up and say, come on, we're, we're, like the old hymn says, we're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Let's go. Come on. We got this. Endure. And then when I'm up, I know there's another brother or sister that needs me to come and lift them up. Maybe there's others who are standing between these two mountains. And you know the mountain of grace is the place of life. But for whatever reason, choosing sin seems to be more convenient, more comfortable, maybe even a little more happier. You know the words of Jesus, but you'd rather submit to lesser things, temporal things, believing the lie that they'll somehow satisfy the longings of your heart. Oh, we need to hear those words again. There in, the, in chapter 12, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, casting our gaze upon Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Take off the sin-heavy shackles and run the race of faith, continually gazing, looking upon, beholding him, Beholding Jesus, the one who initiated or authored your faith, and the one who will be faithful to carry you all the way to the finish line, to carry you all the way to Mount Zion, into the very presence of God. Put off the sin. It goes nowhere. Temporal happiness. It's a lie. Still others tend to go back to the law. The Pharisees were great at the law. They were were great at it. They they had PhDs in the law. And they, they had a big camp there at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Base camp. Base camp Sinai, they would call it, I'm sure. They had no relationship with God. They didn't draw near to him. They thought they did, but they, they weren't. They were, 
who are just going through the religious motions. You know, I've, I've been hanging out in, in Hebrews the past several months, just chewing on it and reading. And, and, and then right now I'm taking our church through the book of Galatians. Very similar. They're, they're, like, they're going back to the law. They're going back to the law. And he's like, hey, quit this. You've, you've been set free from that. But we had this tendency to just go back there. And, and how do you know if you're going back to the law? How do you know when you're going, going back to the law? It's when you're going through the motions. It's when you, you, you come and you, you, you just kind of sing the words, but you're not engaged. Your heart isn't there. You're, even now, you're like, hey, what are we eating for dinner? Or what are we having? How long is he going to preach? He's a guest guy. Does he know what time we end? I want to make it to the... Now, we just kind of go through, and I'm guilty of this. I find myself, I mean, I love to read the Bible. Sometimes, I'll just admit, I mean, I love the little, you know, the little things that, hey, read through the Bible in a year. I love the little checkmark things. And here's where I was. I mean, I'm reading, I'm like, check. All right, man, ooh, that feels good. And then I even, now I start to see that page kind of fill up. But the word isn't getting into my heart. It's not creating change in my life. It's just religious duty. It's just going through the motions. It's a good practice, but it's just, it's just motion. And I think if we're all honest, we would admit that that's the gravitational pull of our hearts. Religiosity is simply, again, going through the emotions, those check marks. Went to church, check. Prayed, prayed for right before dinner, check. Put a little money in the offering chest. Check. Going through religious motions, it's like a, it's like a swimmer. Puts on his or her swimsuit but never gets wet. Oh, I think continue. We need to just pray and fight back this gravitational pull to religiosity, this pull to just law and going through duty. Oh, God, revive our hearts. Give us an insatiable hunger and thirst for your word. Oh, God, restore the joy of our salvation. Well up in our hearts a longing to, to dwell on Mount Zion, to run from Mount Sinai where it's just law and ritual and come to you, the place of, where the living God dwells, to come boldly into your presence and to gaze, gaze upon your beauty. Oh, that we would be satisfied with your steadfast love alone. Friends, we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the gospel of grace. Brothers and sisters, let us not reject him. Let us accept him who is speaking yet once again. He will soon shake our passage says, he will shake all of creation, removing all the things that are temporal and worthless so that what remains is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God is the place where he dwells and rules and reigns. The kingdom of God is eternal, immovable, unstoppable, unchangeable, and unshakable. It's where we receive 
our internal inheritance. It's where we live with God as our king forever. It's where God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. The gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom. Praise God. There's one last part of our main theme. The gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom that elicits gratitude and worship. So what is our response to receiving such a gift? Well, 28, verse 28 tells us gratitude. Gratitude. Our our hearts should explode with gratitude. I mean, I yesterday, I mean, I I could not hold the I was just in awe of the moment and I was just so thankful for what God had done in the life of Jeremy and Claire and bringing them together. I just there were tears of gratitude. Thinking about being with you. I've been thinking since the, the day Brad reached out and said, Oh, just such gratitude for this for this church family. The impact you have been in my life. But here is this, this one who has given us an unshakable kingdom. How can we not be thankful? 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This unshakable kingdom we've received should make us the most thankful people on this earth. Not only does it elicit gratitude, it draws us into deep heart overflowing and God-pleasing worship. We could could preach multiple sermons on what what is acceptable worship. But simply, worship that is truth embodied and spirit filled, worship that emanates with with reverence and awe, the worship that is centered around the gospel and exalts Christ and appoints us to a God who is seated on the throne, a worship like what we did earlier, just that that makes our hearts well up and long for that new Jerusalem, that Mount Zion, where we get to dwell with God and he is our God and we are his people through the blood of Jesus. God. God is the... God of both mountains. He is the consuming fire of Mount Zion or Mount Sinai, and he's also the approachable presence of Mount Zion. Oh, so let's ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The gospel of grace makes us members of an unshakable kingdom that elicits gratitude and worship. It calls us to radical obedience. It calls us to put off sin. It calls us to quit going through the religious motions, the checkboxes. It calls us to 
an overwhelming and unending gratitude, even in the difficulties of life. And it calls us to all filled worship. Oh, friends, does this describe you? Church, family, does, does this describe you? If not, what needs to change today? What needs to change today? Let's pray.